morning, everybody. It's so good to see you today. Before we open God's Word, I want to share with you a next-gen update. And the headline of this update is, Please Keep Praying, all right? Uh, we want you to uh, be encouraged to pray uh, for the work on our building to be finished very quickly. We're getting closer, but we need prayers in that regard. And we also want you to be praying about um, our progress that we have made. Some good progress has been made uh, towards getting our interim traffic signal at the intersection of Grant Line and Lammers uh, completed. Uh, just be praying that all of the details will get worked out soon because, and if you want to hear this, there is a possibility that we will be able to worship in our new auditorium by Easter. Amen. And so uh, we really want to encourage you to pray. Um, it is not a guarantee, uh, but uh, if God opens the door, we want to be ready to go through it. So be praying. Ask God to do what only God can do. Amen? Well, we're starting uh, today a brand new series, and it is called Red Talks. Now, many of you know about TED Talks and these online talks that are given by all kinds of people on this very wide range of topics, all of them in under 18 minutes. And I need to make it real clear that has nothing to do with the sermons. Uh, and they're all under the heading of ideas worth spreading. Now, people have uh, watched TED Talks for well over one billion times now. They're very, very popular. Uh, some of you are fascinated by them. And I just want us to think today how Jesus... He shared ideas that, that have been spreading for 2,000 years now. Jesus often had conversations with people from all walks of life that we find in the red-letter section of our Bibles. These are talks that have transformed for 2,000 years now billions and billions of lives. Today, more than 2 billion people all around the world claim to be Jesus' followers. And so we're going to be in the next few weeks looking at some of these red talks, and we are going to find them in the Gospel of John. And as we get to our first one today, I want to start with a simple question. Uh, it's this, what is the most famous verse in the Bible? How would you answer that? Well, exactly. I think almost all of us would say John 3.16. Because even people who haven't read the Bible or don't really know uh, much about Jesus, a lot of them have heard of John 3.16. And on top of this, John 3.16 would probably be the favorite verse of most Christ followers when you ask them what their favorite verse is. Uh, it is so because this verse captures the heart of the gospel like almost no other verse in all of the Bible does. Sometimes it seems like John 3.16 is everywhere. We see it on the sides of roads as we travel you know, out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, back in the 70s was when John 3.16 started kind of penetrating our culture's consciousness, this guy with a frizzy rainbow wig began showing up at sporting events holding up that John 3.16 sign. You remember him? And then more recently, 10 years ago, in the 2009 college championship game, uh, Tim Tebow put on his eye black those words, John 3.16, and for the next 24 hours... John 3.16 became the highest-ranked Google search in the whole world, uh, generating over 90 million searches. And then interestingly enough, exactly three years after that, to the exact day, 
Tim Tebow led the Denver Broncos to an overtime victory over the Pittsburgh Steelers, wearing, once again, that eye black with John 3.16 on it. After the game, the Broncos PR rep approached Tebow and said to him very excitedly, do you realize what just happened? And Tebow said to him, "Uh, yeah, we just beat the Steelers and we're going to play the Patriots. And he said, no, 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 you don't don't understand. He says, it is exactly three years from the day that you wore John 3.16 under your eyes. And Tebow said, oh, that's pretty cool. He said, no, no, you, you still don't understand He said, you just threw in this game for 316 yards. Had 10 completions. And he said, your yards per completion were 31.6. And your yards per rush were 3.16. And our team's time of possession was 31 minutes and 6 seconds. Also, it turned out that the Nielsen ratings for that game was 31.6. Once again, over the next 24 hours, John 3.16 was the highest-ranked Google search in the entire world. Now, as your pastor, I will tell you, I don't know if that means anything, all right? (laughs) It could. We don't know. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if it means anything, but I am sure of this. I am sure of the truth and the power of the message that we find in that verse, John 3.16. And John 3.16 says, and I want to invite you, if you would, to read it out loud together with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, if you have been coming to church for very long, there's a good chance somewhere along the line you've memorized those words. At the least, you probably know them very well. But what do they really mean? And what are the original contexts that we find these words appearing in? And what do these words say specifically to your life and my life today? Our first conversation with Jesus is going to help us answer those questions. And so if you're not there yet, go ahead and turn to John chapter 3. And as you're turning, let me set the scene. One night, Jesus has a talk with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus approaches Jesus with some questions, and his questions lead to John 3.16. So let's check out the context, what comes before we get to those famous and familiar words. We'll start in verse 1, where it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And go ahead and stop right there, because this one sentence reveals a whole lot about this guy. And I'll sum it up like this. He was elite. He was elite. Now, there are three uh, important facts about him we see in this chapter. The first one is that he was a Pharisee. Today, we hear this word Pharisee, and certain pictures come into our minds, right? If someone calls you a Pharisee, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Yeah, that's right. We hear Pharisee, and we think of people who are uptight and rigid, hypocritical, not very nice religious people, right? Very few of us would want to be called a Pharisee. But you need to know alongside of that, none of us could ever probably live up to the moral standards that they attained and that they practiced. He was a man who was elite religiously. Let me explain to you how elite he was. 
There were never more than 6,000 Pharisees at one time in the entire nation of Israel. And all of them had made a vow before God and two witnesses that they would do everything they could every single waking hour of their lives to keep the law of God perfectly. Here's how seriously they took God's law. With each one of God's commandments, they began hundreds of years before to write down extra rules, uh, making sure that they were precisely obeying every one of the commandments. And their, their main rule book kept growing and growing and developing. It later became known as the Mishnah. I'll give you one example of what I'm talking about from just one of the Ten Commandments. Actually, the, the commandment about keeping the Sabbath. It's nine words, just nine words, one sentence in English. The Mishnah has 24 chapters about exactly how to keep the Sabbath. But then they discovered that wasn't enough because they had to interpret what the Mishnah was saying. And so they began writing other things down, and they wrote these things down in another book that eventually became known as the Talmud, which interpreted what the Mishnah had to say. So in the Talmud, we have 128 pages of interpretation on the 24 chapters in the Mishnah on that one commandment, nine words in English, one sentence about keeping the Sabbath. So what we're talking about here is elite religious devotion. And the Pharisees, no matter what we say about them, were probably some of the most outwardly holy people who have ever lived. This verse also tells us that Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Some of your translations call it the Sanhedrin. That was its name. This is kind of like the Jewish Senate. And it was a, a select group of 70 men who ruled over all of the Jewish people, not just in Israel, but anywhere a Jewish person lived anywhere around the world. So he was elite politically. And then on top of that, if we go down to verse 10, Jesus actually calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. This doesn't show up in some of our translations, but actually in the Greek text, the word the, the definite article there, is emphasized uh, by the way the grammatical structure is given. It's an emphatic word. And so what we have here is this very clear description of Nicodemus as an elite person. Here is how elite he was. Narrowed down the general population from everybody down to 6,000 Pharisees. Narrow those 6,000 Pharisees down to 70 men who made up the Sanhedrin. Then narrow those 70 men down to one. Because some people believe Nicodemus was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. The point is this. Nicodemus was at the very top. Religiously, morally, socially, politically. By all of his culture's standards, he was an unqualified success. We might today call him a one percenter. But something in his life, as we're about to see, is missing. And he doesn't stop seeking. And I think this uh, gives us something very positive that we can learn from this Pharisee. And you can write this down. Don't let your status keep you from your search. You see, some of you are here today and some of you, you know that there's something not right with you spiritually. You know it. Maybe you know your life is out of control with what has become for you an addiction or, or a compulsion. Maybe you're here and you know that your marriage needs help. 
but maybe you have some status among your circle of friends. Maybe some people look up to you. Maybe there are some who think you're such a spiritual person that the idea that of you going to a recovery group or the idea of you going to a marriage counselor to find some wisdom, to get some help. Well, it's kind of embarrassing. And so you won't do it. You don't want to humble yourself. You need to be encouraged to be like Nicodemus. Keep searching because if you seek, the Bible says you will find. But if you do not seek, you will not find God's help. Verse 2 tells us, he came to Jesus at night. And by the way, uh, grammatically, exegetically speaking, this tells us that he was the original Nick at night. You can write that down. <laughs> You're welcome. Some people, uh, some people think that he did this because he was embarrassed to be seen with Jesus. Uh, he didn't want people to know that he was coming to visit Jesus. But that may not be the case. There are others who think that he just wanted some time alone with Jesus for a serious conversation because reality was both Nicodemus and Jesus were very important, uh, pretty famous people, kind of like celebrities. And so maybe he came at night just so they could talk without distractions and interruption. Verse 2 continues, Nicodemus is speaking, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, among other things, this shows us that not every Pharisee was completely opposed to Jesus, and some of them were very intrigued by him. We, we see this happening more and more in different places as we continue reading uh, in the New Testament, and we're going to see this continuing to develop with Nicodemus. But he comes to him at night, and he's saying, Jesus, I know you have something, but I don't know what it is. It's something I don't have. It's something I, I don't understand. What are you all about? I want you to see, what does Jesus say to this sincere seeker? Jesus paints three pictures, three word pictures, that are meant to reach Nicodemus and us, to reach to the very core of our souls. It's almost like Jesus is responding to Nicodemus with art or with poetry. Art and poetry are, are meant to reach us at heart levels. And I, I think it's intriguing that he does this with Nicodemus. Because if you ask Nicodemus, what is spiritual life all about? Nicodemus might have shown you rows and rows of books. Maybe something like these law books. Nicodemus knew so much. He had so much knowledge but he's seeking Jesus because he knows something is missing. And what is it that's missing? Nicodemus knew a lot about rules. I mean, hundreds of pages of rules. But Jesus was offering something more. And Nicodemus knew that he was. So what does following Jesus truly mean? Well, Nicodemus shows Jesus' law books, and Jesus says that relationship with God is actually a lot more like a baby being born, a brand new baby, just like this. A baby, maybe kind of like my first grandchild who's scheduled to be born sometime this week. This is the first word picture that Jesus paints, 
And what he's telling us is this. You can write it down in your notes. Following Jesus is not about religion, but about rebirth. Look what John writes in verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You think you are truly righteous, Nicodemus, and you are in human terms. But no one can know God unless he's born again. Now, this phrase, born again, is a very common, very familiar one for many of us. And I think there's a real sense that we could say this phrase in our culture today has almost been ruined because it's, it's used in so many different ways all across our culture. I, I heard a few weeks ago uh, before the Super Bowl, some people were writing about how the L.A. Rams were, had been this terrible team for so very long, but under their new coach, they had reached the Super Bowl. They were born again, born again football team. Uh, you, you will find sometimes after a dip in the stock market, the stock market comes roaring back, and some writers will say Wall Street is born again. I've read of celebrities, you know, usually after they've come out of rehab and they have a good movie or they, they produce a, a best-selling album of some kind. They're, they're born again, born again careers. And I regularly see articles in newspapers and magazines on blogs that will refer to Christians like us as born-again bigots because we do not accept the terms, we have not acquiesced uh, to the moral and sexual revolution in our culture. Lots of people use this term in lots of different ways. Lots of people use the term born-again to refer to a particular kind of an emotional religious experience. So born-again has many different meanings in our culture But Jesus is the one who coined the phrase. So what does Jesus mean? What is Jesus saying when he uses this phrase? I want you to let the poetry of this image kind of sit with you for a minute. I just want to ask you to think of it like this. When you were physically born, how much effort did you expend to be born? Just think about it. Think about how that whole process happens. First, you develop in your mother's womb over nine months, little hands and little feet, the eyes and the ears. I mean, did you make your own little feet? When it came to your hands, did you see, you know, I think I, think I need 10 fingers, and you grunted and pop, 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 you know, and you just popped them up at your will. No, you just grew. And how active were you at the moment of your birth? I apologize for the trauma some of the women are going to experience right now, but did you shove yourself out when you were born? I mean, were you like in radio communication with your doctor? You know, Roger, doc, we are good to G-O, it's three, it's two, you know. No, of course not. Someone else did the work. Someone else felt the pain. Someone else made the effort. And Jesus is saying it is just like that when you are born spiritually. God gives you spiritual birth. You do not give spiritual birth to yourself. In fact, the Bible makes it so crystal clear if we're paying attention. The Bible says that we're a part from God, we are dead 
in our sins. The Bible says that when we are apart from God, we are by our nature children of wrath. In other words, we are under the very judgment and condemnation of God. And let me just ask you, think about why that kind of imagery would be used, why that kind of metaphor would be used. Can dead people make themselves alive? And the answer, of course, is no. Something outside has to happen to change that kind of a situation. And what Jesus is saying right here is that God is the one who does that. God does the labor on our behalf. God gives us spiritual life, and we are born. Now, you may say, this is kind of a confusing image. I'm not sure I really comprehend it. Well, you're, you're in good company, because Nicodemus, with all of his learning, doesn't get it either. Verse 4 says, How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, this is a pretty ludicrous question in some regards. And, and honestly, there are many scholars and, and pastors who have preached lots of sermons talking about how stupid Nicodemus must have been. But I'm not sure that's what's going on here. I think Nicodemus is confused by this. He doesn't think Jesus is saying, somehow you have to go back into your mother's room. I think he's just saying, I don't really get it. It doesn't really make sense to me. What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus answers that question with some more art, with another poem. He tells a second truth. You can write this down. He he tells him that following Jesus is not about systems, but about the Spirit. In verse 5, it says, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And it's like he's saying, Nicodemus, I know you want so bad to be in the kingdom of God. You are trying so hard But you need to know that no one can enter in their own flesh. What he's saying here is most of us, like Nicodemus, we're here today because we are sincerely seeking after God. We want to enter the kingdom of God. We we want to follow God. But how do we do that? Truth is, for a lot of us, a lot of the time it really comes down to something that Nicodemus was like gold medal status about. It comes down to willpower. We think it's about willpower. We, we try so hard, and we eventually always fail. And when we fail, we think we need to try harder. And then when we fail again another time, we think we need to try even harder than that. But it never works, does it? Some of us have discovered that. Why not? Well, What is the basic problem with human effort at self-improvement? And the answer is my human nature cannot fix a fundamental flaw in my human nature. In my experience, the people who understand this best are often the people who have been through recovery because they have come to understand that you cannot depend on willpower to overcome a flaw in your willpower Verse 6 says, Jesus continues to speak, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. In other words, Nicodemus, to solve a spiritual problem, you need spiritual power. It's the sort of thing that, that some of us have learned in our lives the hard way that no matter how much we go to church, 
No matter how much we read the Bible and pray, no matter how many good works that we try to do, if we have not been fundamentally changed, like down to the very core of our beings, when the time and the opportunity are right, we have found to our shame that we go right back to our old nature, right back. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's why you have to be born again. You need a new nature from God that's been planted in your heart. And so we have this this first picture Jesus paints of a baby being born. And he's saying, Nicodemus, you need to be reborn. And this is something you cannot work up. Only God can do that. But maybe Nicodemus is thinking, well, how do I get that new birth? And that brings us to the second image that Jesus is talking about. Jesus talks about something that we here have seen a lot of this winter. He talks about the wind, the wind. The wind blowing through the tree branches, the wind blowing ocean waves, the wind blowing wherever it wants to blow. Jesus says the spiritual life is also kind of like the wind. Look what he says in verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, again, what's Jesus saying here? Well, again, remember who he's talking to. He's saying it's not about systems, but it's about the Spirit. And everything in Nicodemus' life was about knowledge, about power, about control. I mean, 24 chapters just on how you keep a one-sentence command, how you keep the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, Remember, you really can't put God in a box. The wind blows wherever it pleases. Jesus is saying there's something new. There's something fresh. It's happening. God is doing it through me, through my ministry. And it's something, Nicodemus, that God wants to do in your life. Your life. But it comes from the Holy Spirit. It does not come from our own effort, our own control, our own knowledge. I was thinking this week about one of the aggravating things about technology, at least for me, maybe for you too. You know how technology companies are always, always updating software. You're always getting these updates, right? And uh, they, they say to us they're improving things. But how many of you have the sneaking suspicion that what they're really doing is they're making it sure that sooner than we want to, we have to buy new hardware we have to buy new equipment. So are you with me on this? How many of you say, as God's people, amen? amen. Yeah. That's probably the best amen I'm going to get all day, unfortunately. <laughs> but, you know, so, so they're always updating this. And, you know, along the way, they'll tell you, here's an add-on and here's a plug-in. But we know, we know sooner or later, this whole thing, planned obsolescence, is going to come to bear. And we're going to have to spend more money. And I was thinking about this because I think that Nicodemus kind of saw Jesus as an update, as a plug-in, as an add-on. He thought he was a pretty good person, but he knew that maybe Jesus could improve him or make him a better person. And I thought about how many people, maybe some of you, maybe even right now you're here today, and you think, I'm a pretty good person. There's a lot of good stuff in me, but I could be better. I could, I could be more of this or more of that. And so maybe, 
Maybe even you, you're coming to Jesus, and he's an update on your operating system. He's an add-on. He's a plug-in. Here's what you need to see. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he will tell you. Jesus is coming, has come, to give you a whole new operating system. Jesus has come to change and revolutionize your life completely. He says, Nicodemus, you need a new life. You need the Spirit. You cannot do this by your own effort. So think of these images so far, two of them. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you you ask Nicodemus, what does the spiritual life look like? And he would have showed you law books. It's about following the laws. But Jesus asked him what the spiritual life looked like. And he says, it's like a newborn baby. And then Jesus points to the wind blowing in the trees. But then, third, he gives us the weirdest picture of all. Jesus talks about a bronze serpent on a pole in the desert surrounded by dying people. And we read this, and at first we're kind of like, what? (laughs) What is he talking about? Well, that gets us to the third point. You can write this down. Following Jesus is not about trying, but about trusting. It's not about trying principles, but about trusting a person. And here's the third word picture he paints, starting in verse 14, just as Moses. And I think he brings Moses up because Moses would have been Nicodemus' hero, Moses the lawgiver. Jesus says, let me show you something about your hero, Nicodemus. I want to show you how I am bringing something new, but God was already doing something like this way back even in Moses' day. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. You say, what is this about? Well, he's talking about this weird story that happened centuries before Jesus, back in the time of Moses. You can read about it in Numbers 21. And there was this miracle that God did. Here's the context. The children of Israel have been rescued, redeemed by God from slavery in Egypt. The exodus has taken place. They still haven't gotten to the promised land where they're going to enter the promised land. They're out in the wilderness, and they start doing something that none of you ever do. Never, ever. They grumble against God. You guys have never done that. I know, but those people did that. They grumbled. Could you believe they grumbled against God? Well, obviously, we do too sometimes, and you better say amen about this one because God is listening. (laughs) And they grumble, and we should be grateful that God doesn't respond to our grumbling like he did to their grumbling because God sends judgment, and he sends judgment, it's going to freak some of you out, in the form of this plague of snakes. It would be like somebody unloading 100,000 snakes into the lobby out there, and they're all coming this way, and they know how to climb up chairs. What are you going to (laughs) do? There's so many snakes that no one can get away, and these snakes are poisonous, and they bite people, and people are dying. They're all dying. There's no cure. There's no hope. Everyone is doomed. And God says to Moses, I'm going to do a miracle. You make a bronze serpent, and you put it on a pole, and you lift it up high. And the miracle that I'm going to do, Moses, is this. You tell everyone that if they will just look at the bronze serpent lifted up high, and in faith believe that I will heal them, 
If they just look, they will be saved. They'll be healed. That's all they have to do. Just look in faith, and they will be saved from the serpent's poison. You see, in those moments, those people could not save themselves. And it's kind of interesting. Think about it. They didn't have to understand how this would work, how looking at a bronze serpent is going to heal them. They didn't have to understand why. They didn't have to prove themselves worthy of being healed. All God said is look in faith and be healed. Anybody see the parallel that Jesus is drawing here? See, the Bible says we are all dying of a poison in our souls, and you could say that poison was introduced by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. It's the poison of sin. And so Jesus is saying he's going to sacrifice himself for us on a cross, and he will be lifted up high, and all we will need to do is look. Just look, and you will be healed. Just look and believe. Now, we don't know exactly when this takes place chronologically in Jesus' ministry. John doesn't lay things out for us perfectly clear all the time. It is early in this gospel, so it may have been as long as three years before Jesus is actually crucified. And I want you to notice right here in this chapter, we get it because we have the rest of the Bible, but Jesus doesn't explain this. And so I think when Nicodemus hears these words, he's puzzled because this is kind of a mystery. But I think John puts this here so early in his gospel as a foreshadowing of what is to come. And eventually, you read to the end of John's gospel, and you will realize that Nicodemus will see Jesus on the cross. And he must remember this conversation. And I think he had to have gone, oh, now I understand I get this new thing that Jesus is doing. And here's what I want you to see today. This word picture and the other two that we've been talking about, everything we've been talking about so far this morning, all of it together is leading up to this one verse that we know so well, John 3.16, where Jesus then says, now says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, what he is saying still today, what he is saying to you if you have not done it yet is whoever believes, whoever believes Whoever just looks on Jesus on the cross and believes. You don't have to understand everything about how this works. You don't have to meet certain qualifications. You don't have to be a person who's either done or not done certain things. It's just whoever believes. Jesus says, if you look and if you believe, you shall not die of the serpent's poison, but you will know eternal life. Whoever looks and believes will be saved. When we do that, when we look, when we believe, when we trust, everything changes. So I say to you today, just trust. Stop trying. Stop trying to do the best you can. Stop trying to earn your salvation. Start 
trusting in the one who already has won your salvation. It's really that simple. There was a woman who lives now in Oregon who shared her story some time ago, and she was actually born and raised in the nation of Croatia, and it was a communist nation then. She was raised as an atheist, and and she tells this story and said, I was strongly antagonistic to Christianity. I've been raised that way. But when I uh, was 18, I ran into a priest, and we had a conversation. And he said in that first conversation, I want you to know that God really loves you. And she said, you know, most people would just say thank you, but I yelled at him. I said, no, there is no God. And if there was a God, he wouldn't love me or anyone. I mean, how could he just look at this mess of this world that we live in? How can you even think of saying there's a loving God? And she said, I just, I argued with this priest. But she said he continued uh, to respond with kindness. And over a number of weeks, we ran into each other again. He kept smiling at me. He kept treating me kindly. He kept telling me, you know, God really does love you. And she said, we came to a time and they knew it was going to be the last time they would meet. And he said, you know what? We may never see each other again. So I'm going to leave you with a Bible verse. And she said, I I rolled my eyes and I thought, great, great. And she said, he he quoted me, John 3.16, in our Croatian language. And in any language, she said, there's something about that verse that just captivates you. So he said it to me once, and it just stuck in my brain. For the next two years, I was thinking about that verse, and for two years, I was arguing over every single word in that verse. She said, what I didn't realize I was doing was memorizing the verse until it became like a part of the DNA of my soul. She said, finally, at the end of two years, I thought about that verse again one day. And I realized, I believe it now. She said, I didn't know anything else about Christianity, but everything I needed to know was packed into that one verse. And so I knelt down in that moment and I prayed the first prayer that I'd ever prayed. I said, God, I don't understand it all but I believe. And I believe that I'm so messed up and we're so messed up that our only hope, God, is for you to come down and help us. Our only hope would be if you came and you saved us. Our human effort hasn't saved us, so God, you have to save us. God, you have to save me. God, will you save me? And she said, that's how John 3, 16 led me to Jesus. I was won over by the love of God shown in that one single verse. Just trusting, just looking to Jesus on the cross and trusting changed everything for her. And so we have in this talk, in this story, three word pictures. They're given to a very religious man, a man who's trying very hard to do what's right. Jesus says, Nicodemus, all you have to do is receive new birth. All you have to do is be like a baby being born. 
Nicodemus, all you have to do is allow the power of the Spirit to blow through your life, just like powerless branches being moved by the wind. All you have to do, Nicodemus, is look to Jesus on the cross and receive healing from the death of sin that is in your life. Just look, just trust, just believe, and you will be saved. That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. And as we close the message, I, I hope that these images, quite frankly, haunt you this week. I hope they kind of roll around in your mind a little bit and you kind of wrestle with them. But, but as we get ready to close, I want to leave you with one question. It's a real simple question. Here it is. You need to ask yourself, have I believed in Jesus? Have you? As John 3.16 invites you to? Have you believed in Jesus? Are you looking to the cross for your salvation? Do you have just a pure and simple devotion to Christ? Maybe you've actually trusted in Jesus, that maybe you're here today, and as a Christian, you've kind of complicated everything. You've added like 24 chapters and 128 pages to what it means to follow Jesus, to this one simple verse. You know, it's kind of interesting, much later, if we read through the rest of John's gospel, we will see that after Jesus is crucified, there are two men who come and they take Jesus' body and they bury it. Guess who one of the two men was? Guess who takes Jesus' body off the cross, gently lays it in a tomb at great personal risk? One of those two men was Nicodemus. Nicodemus eventually got to the point where it didn't matter to him what anyone else thought. Nicodemus proclaimed himself to be a follower of Jesus. What Jesus said in this talk broke through to him. And maybe today, what we've been talking about through John 3.16 will break through in your life as well. Maybe it will. You don't have to wait any longer. Jesus says, I'm giving you an invitation right now. All you need to do is look. Just look at the cross and believe. Just look and believe. Would you bow your heads as we pray together?